what we've been taught in Western culture is clearly killing us and is a deep corruption of the biblical vision. And so we have to ask ourselves, what, what do we want? Do we want to live within a system of gratitude that traps us and holds us in debt? Or will we follow Jesus, who, when, he, when the disciples ask him, Lord, how do we pray? Jesus turned around and said to them, well, pray this way, as we forgive our debtors. The central point of the Lord's Prayer is freedom from bondage of debt, is the release from relationships of exchange and quid pro quo. Hey there, welcome to another episode of the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I am your host, Seth. Excited for the conversation today, and I think you will be too. To the handful of you that have gone on and rated the show on iTunes, thank you so much. That helps more than you know. The Apple overlords have an algorithm, and it, and it likes ratings and reviews. So for those of you listening right now, just hit pause, take 20 seconds, go review this show. I will be forever grateful. We'll send you a bag of Pop Rocks. It'll be great. I would also ask the same thing for those of you and, and thank those of you that have gone on to Patreon. We are uh, slowly but surely gaining steam there and that will only ensure that the show is able to maintain the status quo and hopefully grow in the future. And I am forever grateful for those of you that have taken the time to do that. Your 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 time, your commitment, and, and, and the donations that you do are, are greatly appreciated. Now today I have the joy of speaking with Dr. Diana Butler Bass, who is an award-winning author of nine books on American religion. She has her PhD in religious studies from Duke University. She's taught at different colleges at the graduate level. She's currently an independent scholar, and she lives in Alexandria, Virginia. We discussed uh, a bit of her history, her theological upbringing, and the practice of being grateful, and how we as Christians need to look at gratitude through a lens of Jesus and how we use that to further the kingdom for today and live in a, an economy of grace. And so I look forward to, to hearing this. Dr. Diana Butler-Bass. Diana, thank you so much for taking the time to join the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I appreciate you coming on, and I'm looking forward to the conversation today. Well, I appreciate coming on, and I just love the title of your podcast. Thanks. Because there are all kinds of things I always want to say at church and hold my tongue. So (laughs) maybe this is my chance. (laughs) I I agree. Yeah, say whatever you want. We'll we'll leave it alone. And then any of those questions that you feel like you want to say, just send those to me, and and, and we'll we'll work through them together. So I'd like to take a little bit of our time at the beginning just to get to know you a bit. What would you tell, want people to know about you? A little bit of your story, your background, uh, and then we'll roll into uh, the topic at hand, which is your upcoming book, Grateful. Well, I think that for the purposes of a podcast with the title you have um, is a bit of my my spiritual autobiography. And I've published rather widely about my own sort of journey. And um, I was born and raised a Methodist in Baltimore. I was born in 1959. My 
20-year-old daughter loves saying, Mom, you were born in the 50s. Well, just as they were ending. <laughs> I don't remember them. And uh, then I, so I grew up in a, a Methodist church in Baltimore City. And then my parents moved to Arizona when I was 13. And um, it was there that we, we just joined another Methodist church. But Arizona is a very different place than Baltimore. Um, and so I was a young teenager, and I went off kind of on my own spiritual journey. At, from uh, growing up Methodist, I just started going to different kinds of religious and spiritual groups with various friends of mine, uh, synagogue, Catholic church. Those were sort of the heydays of the charismatic movement in the Catholic church, uh, Mormon stakes, healing services on the uh, Pima Indian community that was right off of uh, Scottsdale, about two blocks from where I lived. So I searched around, and I wound up in this evangelical Bible church, which um, was what I would call soft fundamentalism. And it was that kind of evangelicalism that shaped my journey for about the next 10 years. I wound up going to an evangelical college in California and then an evangelical seminary outside of um, Boston. And it was there that I figured out finally that I was actually really good at theology, and I loved theology. And um, it bothered me in the early 1980s that there were so few women who were engaged in teaching from teaching theology, teaching church history, teaching Bible. So I went on to um, to Duke and got a PhD in religious studies. And it was in the, the years in which I was floating around in sort of evangelical, the evangelical world, that I eventually actually became a member in, a, in an Episcopal church. When I was in Massachusetts, Going to seminary, I joined formally um, an Episcopal church that was right near um, the seminary campus. And uh, so I, for a long time, considered myself sort of an evangelical Episcopalian. And eventually, I sort of began to just drop the evangelical moniker. And I realized that my my journey was really kind of a a, a big, wide journey in and through American Protestantism with a lot of curiosity about other other forms mostly of Christianity. And so that's uh, that's that's my journey. Yeah. Um in terms of the kinds of churches that I've gone to, the different places that I have gone. But all all along the way, I've always asked questions. Where is God? Where is my heart? What do we do in the world? Um, what does God care about? Uh, so these kinds of motivating, very experiential questions um, have always been at the center of, of my spiritual path. And it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. My birthday uh, is actually not too uh, far in the future as we're recording this, just a few days ahead. And uh, I turned 59 this year. And that's pretty exciting to think about six decades of very serious uh, church going. And um, I think uh, uh, my friends would say of me uh, that I really have spent now a lifetime uh, reflecting on issues of meaning, of scripture, of, of prayer, and uh, of trying to figure out what it means to love God and love our neighbors. 
that sounds like a lifetime well spent. A side little tangent, what do you find is the biggest difference between Episcopalian or uh, versus you know evan- fundamental evangelical? What what is the biggest the biggest change? Yeah, it was interesting. The the point of crisis in that dual identity of evangelical and Episcopal actually came not too terribly long after I joined uh, the Episcopal Church, although I really didn't want to admit that it was a crisis for for a little bit of time. And, and that was, the years I spent within evangelicalism were so focused on doctrine, on having to have the correct views of God. And if you didn't think the right stuff about who Jesus was, and how salvation happened, and how to interpret the Bible, then your eternal fate was up for grabs. And so there was a deep concern for orthodoxy in every kind of issue related to life in the evangelicalism that I knew which is a little odd in some ways because in the in the 18th century evangelicalism had started out as not a movement that was terribly concerned about orthodoxy it was concerned about the right relationship of the heart uh John Wesley who's considered to be one of the originators of the evangelical movement he his whole experience was that of a heart being strangely warmed and George Whitfield, who was his colleague, um, talked about the need to be born again. And neither of those two things is about doctrine. But by the time of the late 20th century in the United States, when I was floating around the evangelical subculture, everything was about right belief. And if you deviated anywhere, you were in trouble. And so that was part of my experience. Then in the Episcopal Church, Originally, what caught my attention was that every single week, you you know, you said this creed, and I, I couldn't believe that. No evangelical church, even if, no matter how concerned they were with doctrine, no evangelical church I had ever been in said the creed. And so here was this, this church with this be- these beautiful buildings and this, um, you know, beautiful, amazing liturgy and these, these rich hymns. And uh, and the creed right at the center of the service, and I thought, wow, this is cool. Uh, this is not really like worshiping in a gym and listening to a sermon on how you must be born again and believe that there's the rapture. Yeah. <laughs> and and so, <laughs> it, it's so, so uh, I joined the Episcopal Church because I I thought it unified things that I really cared about. Yeah, I like that. I like I like that you're allowed to experience emotion because I think you're right. It's uh, evangelicalism in my mind is extremely logical. It's it's A or B, one or zero, and there's nothing in between. Or you're not you're not supposed to have anything in between. Right, and that was what, what was so amazing to me about the Episcopal Church is that everyone, evangelicals I knew, insulted mainline churches by saying things like, "Oh, they're the frozen chosen." But what I experienced is that actually Episcopalians could be very emotive about their liturgy. That is, I I would see people deeply moved in church 
um, through those written prayers and through the, you know, as you went through the cadences of the church year and services of candlelight and services of, uh, of great darkness, like the Ash, uh, Ash Wednesday and Good Friday services. Mm-hmm. And so, so I, I thought, wow, you know, this is, this is really amazing. But it was, but the unity didn't hold the whole long time, uh, because I began to see very quickly that Episcopalians would recite these creeds and they formed those frameworks for what they believed, but they were also very willing to question them. Yeah. And, and that really scared me. And, and so I would look around and I would be in church with people who would who would be deeply shaped by the liturgy. And then you'd talk to them during the coffee hour and you'd find out, and this is, you know, back in the eighties, things like they thought that women could be priests. And I went, Oh my gosh, how can that possibly be? Isn't that a violation of, of the hierarchy established by God in Genesis? And then again, in the book of Ephesians Mm -hmm. and, and um, so they really puzzled me. Yeah. And then one day, then one day at the church I attended um, in Massachusetts, this um, Episcopal bishop came and did a adult Sunday school hour. And the church, because it was right next to this seminary, this evangelical seminary, there were actually a lot of people in that. Uh, that Episcopal Church, who were very doctrinally focused, even though there were others who were much broader and questioning. So it was kind of a mixed congregation. But the people who were the really doctrinally fixated folks at that congregation attacked the bishop during this Sunday school hour. Hmm. And the bishop, I I remember sitting in in that, you know, in the audience, it was in a parish hall, and the bishop didn't react. He was not reactive at all. He was not mean back to this attack. Instead, he just said, all I can do is tell you one thing, and that is God is love, and that love is a great mystery. Well, I think that leads beautifully in- into the book that you've written. And I wanted to talk a bit about your, your heart and your mind behind your most recent book, Grateful. I know that you live, you know, in Northern Virginia, and I know the timeline that you have written this book in over the, you know, the, the past year and a half, two years, and just how, mm, what's a good word, hateful the world is. And so how, how were you able to insulate yourself and at the same, uh, you know, from the attitudes, from the politics, how were you able to insulate yourself and write a book about being grateful or, or the act of gratitude? That's a great question, um, because I wasn't. I think we live in a culture right now that, unless you're a hermit, it's actually impossible to insulate yourself from what's going on in the world. Um, I think the closest thing that we come to in terms of trying to insulate ourselves is that we create these silos. So at least our engagement of the world it or the way we receive information from the world is protected, is boundaried in ways that we approve of or that limit um, us becoming uncomfortable or upset um, by what's going on in the world. Yeah. 
so I, I wouldn't say that I was actually insulated when I was writing gratitude or grateful. Uh, what I just told you about the, the idea that God is love and that love is a great mystery, in some ways I think that's the, the two-word sentence that really describes the whole of my spiritual journey. And every project I take on and every question that I pursue in my writing is really shaped by that, that, that God is love and that love is um, a great mystery. So when I was working on Grateful, I actually got the contract for that book in the spring, I believe we signed the contract of 2016. So that meant that during that really horrible, conflicted presidential election year, um, I was signed up uh, to write a book on gratitude. <laughs> and so I started doing the research and, you know, just I, I, I learned a lot, interviewed a number of scholars um, who study gratitude, and I began reading in a field I had no expertise in at all, and that is the field of um, positive psychology. And I was really interested in thinking about how positive psychology and theology intersected. And so I'm, I'm doing all that, you know, kind of work. And meanwhile, what's happening, you said, in, you know, insulated from the world, is that the, the elections are intruding on this, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so I would write or it's uh, out try to write. <laughs> yeah, I would try to write, and then I'd come up and fix dinner and watch the news, and it was like, oh, my gosh. Uh, this is horrible. And uh, the election cycle just got worse and worse and worse and angrier and angrier. And finally, that anger that was all around us all, I just got to the point where I had to lay it lay it down and say, okay, I, I can't write about gratitude right now. I can do a little bit more research, but I can't really put anything on the page. I'll get back to it on November 8th. Mm-hmm. And then November 8th happened. And um, anybody who knows my work um, or follows me on social media uh, knows that I am uh, not a fan of Donald Trump. And, um, you know, it doesn't mean that if you did vote for Donald Trump, you are morally deficient. To say that I don't like Donald Trump is not an attack on anyone who happened to have voted for him. Um, but um, for me, it was it was devast- a devastating, painful, almost physical blow um, when he was elected. And the, the reason for that is actually in the book. And I don't really want to uh, give a spoiler on that. I don't but, blame you. It is. Yeah. It, it is. I, one thing I came to appreciate most, um, I've been following you on social media for a while, but the stories that are in this book uh, I think are relatable to either side. You, you're either... Either way, you're going to relate to it because it's the stories that we have. It's the stories that we had yesterday, um, and and the you know we're we're recording this just the day after, you know, horrible shooting in 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 Florida, and it, yeah, I just, I mean, the the stories resonate and the emotion resonates, which I find as a as a man is hard. I find emotionally connecting sometimes is hard. And you talk a, a bit about that how there's the the sense that gratitude is is somehow viewed as a a feminine trait or or not allowed for men right. to have which i think i would agree with the way i was raised not the way i was raised but the way that our culture raises us is you have to be 
John Wayne, for lack of a better word. You have to be stoic. Right. And there is a lot in Grateful, which is about how violence and suffering inhibits our ability to be able to experience gratitude. And um, that's what I was really worried about um, when Trump was elected. What I had experienced through the campaigns was an increasing amount of public violence directed particularly towards women and persons of color. And as a person who believes that God is love and that love is a great mystery, watching a culture disintegrate into verbal and actual physical violence is devastating in certain ways. Um, so, so, so anyway, I, I just, um, you know, I had a book contract and I had to write. And so eventually, I, I, after about six weeks after the election, I sort of pulled myself together because I was very upset. And um, I, I just said, okay, this book is due April whatever it was, I think it was April 15th, tax day, um, called the publisher, told them I was running late. It would probably come in about May 15th. And they said, that's fine. And and so what happened was I wound up writing a book on gratitude in the first 100 days of Donald Trump being president. And it was um, it was very hard. And you, you're talking about the uh, gratitude always involves vulnerability and community and connection. And right now, those three things, vulnerability, community, and connection, are all very frayed um, in American culture. And so you had asked how I insulate myself. I actually went the opposite direction. I, uh, there was a time, last Lent, I decided that I wasn't going to watch very much news on the television. And that wasn't really about insulation. That was more about sanity. <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to control the flow of news um, that came into my house. So I, you know, we get the Washington Post, and I listen to NPR, and um, you know, we would watch one hour of cable news a night um, rather than anything more extensive than that. So I knew what was going on in the world. I just didn't get into every sort of jot and tittle and outrage, you know, about it. So. Um, but it was obvious while I was working on the book that in order to really understand gratitude, I had to at least know the the despair of the opposite. And um, our culture right now is very much riddled with with arguments about gratefulness and appreciation. And um, I'd say we've 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 lost in large measure vulnerability, community, and connection, and gratitude. Really understanding it, beginning to practice it, might be a way back toward being a better kind of society. At least that's what I hope. And so, with that in mind, for those listening, as a Christian, what is what is gratitude? What are we what are we seeking to do? Is this just something we feel? Is it something we have to do? How do we how do we do gratitude? The first level of gratitude, of course, is that it's a feeling. You know, we walk outside and it's a beautiful day and you say, oh, I'm so thankful it's not raining again. And that sense of wonder or appreciation, just about simple things like that, um, what we feel, that is that is gratitude. There are some psychologists and philosophers who say that's that's not enough. 
Um, but I think that that very simple, very primal human response to when you receive something that you perceive to be a gift, whether it's sunshine or a neighbor coming over and saying good morning or giving you a little bouquet of flowers because she knows you've been feeling bad, that is just like, wow, thanks, you know? And uh, so that's gratitude at its most basic level, a feeling that I experience, that you experience for something good that happens. But there's another level of it, and that is that idea that gratitude is something that we do. And um, that level is also one that I think we all have experience with, for good or for ill. And that is, if your grandparents give you a present at Christmas, you're supposed to write them a thank you note. Mm-hmm. So that's more than just how you feel about the present, but it also has to be a recognition and a and a, a ritual act that expresses that gratitude that you return to the giver. And so that is an action of gratitude. That's doing something. Um, so gratitude is a feeling and it is an action. And um, those two things, some of us are better at the feelings mm-hmm. and some of us and some of us are better at the actions. I have known only a scant few people who were good at both. (laughs) Most people have to sort of, most people wind up privileging one over the other. But one of the things, of course, that I argue in the book is that feelings and actions, when they're balanced and when they're in harmony, is um, part of health and well-being. And when it comes to gratitude, being able to employ both the feeling and the action is um, a much more uh, fulsome experience of of gratitude. I hear that, and, and and part of me, and probably it's the banker in me, hears grandma gives me a gift. I write a thank you note, and so it's it's a then b. It's transactional, and and I know for myself mm-hmm. how to. I'm not good at that second half of the transaction. I am one that would never send a Christmas card because. Most of the people I send them to, we don't even really talk. So I don't know why I'm doing this and spending 50 cents for each one of you to send you <laughs> to send you a card, which sounds <laughs> horrible. But as we talked about before we started recording, that's why I couldn't be a pastor. So how do I how does how do you get past the for myself the guilt of of not being able to reciprocate what the other person probably needs? Well, that is actually the problem with gratitude is that. When someone gives us a gift, there is a required or obligatory response. And that little piece right there, the obligation, the debt of gratitude, is something that a lot of people are uncomfortable with. And the the idea... Usually I didn't ask for it. I I appreciate you giving it to me, but I I didn't ask for this. Right. And so now I'm in your debt? What? You yeah. know, now I have to I have to now invite you to a dinner party or I have to send you a Christmas card or mm-hmm. I've got to go out of my way, go down to the Hallmark store and buy a thank you card and spend time writing it, mailing it and put, you know, the whole deal. And so so we have had this idea of gratitude as a transaction or an economic exchange. I do this and you do that. That's not gratitude. That's called quid pro quo. And that's what we have gotten in our our brains in the United States 
we've mixed those two things up, gratitude and quid pro quo. Those are not the same thing. Gratitude, ideally, is free from obligation. The giver gives a gift with no expectation of return. So givers have to give gifts freely. And beneficiaries return their thanks, not as an obligation, but as a recognition and as a response to the gift. And so one of the things I argue in the book is that there's a, what I call a corrupted system of gratitude, which I refer to as debt and duty gratitude. And that is uh, debt and duty gratitude is when a, a benefactor gives a gift in anticipation of what he or she is going to get in return. And that then that binds the beneficiary into a relationship, usually an unwanted relationship, of exchange. And until the beneficiary carries out whatever that exchange is, the beneficiary is in a thrall, in a sense, to the benefactor. Yeah. Um, that's that's debt and duty gratitude right there. Yeah, and you cede power as well at the same time. You're not even intending to, but it seems like you you're now subservient until you repay what is owed. Yeah, that's it. That's exactly right. And you hear this all the time in our culture. You know, well, how could you do that to me? I did this for you. You know, um, it's it's also royals in our politics. It's like, well, I gave you a donation. You know, if you can imagine. You're some big corporation and you mm-hmm. give, well, this is the discussion we're having the day after the Parkland shooting. Uh, we've been having a talk, a, a cultural discussion about the National Rifle Association. And there are all these United States senators who have been given two or more million dollars for their campaigns uh, by the National Rifle Association. You know, uh, any kind of political camp, uh, political action committee doesn't give somebody two or three million dollars without expecting a vote mm-hmm. in in return. And so what we what we do know is that both on the political right and on the political left, there are politicians who have been given big gifts, quote unquote, uh, by these benefactors. And those benefactors then control the vote. They expect in return that that politician will vote the way they want. And that is a system of quid pro quo or debt and duty gratitude. And it, it's corrupted. Yeah. It's, it's completely corrupted. Yeah. And, and so how do you break through that? The, the point that I argue in the book is that that kind of vision of gratitude, debt and duty, is actually in violation of our faith traditions. That is not the kind of gratitude that is depicted in any world religion. And because, of course, I'm a Christian, as I say in the book, I'm going to write about that mostly from a a Christian uh, perspective, a drawing from the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament. Uh, But the the principles are very much the same in Islam and Buddhism um, and and Hinduism. The the major world religions do not depict gratitude as debt and duty. Even though we sometimes act as if they do in our churches, 
the way way Christianity understands gratitude is that it's a gift and a response, not debt and duty. Yeah, well, I mean that's that's the that's that's Easter. That's that's Jesus. That's 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 the lens that we need to view everything through. I think, but that's so that's, it's so hard to do. <laughs> so so hard to do. Um, it's hard to do because we've been taught a different way in Western culture. But what we've been taught in Western culture is clearly killing us, and is a deep corruption of the biblical vision. Yeah, and so we have to ask ourselves what what do we want. Do we want to live within a system of gratitude that traps us and holds us in debt? Or will we follow Jesus, who, when, he, when the disciples ask him, Lord, how do we pray? Jesus turned around and said to them, well, pray this way, as we forgive our debtors. The central point of the Lord's Prayer is freedom from bondage of debt is the release from relationships of exchange and quid pro quo. And we don't usually think about it like that. We usually think about, oh, Jesus says, oh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. So we're going to ask God to forgive us those naughty things that we do, and we're going to forgive the people who do naughty things against us. That's not what it says. That's not what it says in Greek, and it sure is not the heck what Jesus said when he was preaching it in Aramaic. Jesus said, forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have held us in debt. And what he's saying is, I, you pray every single day to strike down the system of bondage that holds you and your neighbors in this unhealthy relationships. And instead, you're going to live in the freedom of gifts and grace. I wish. That's what, the, that's what the Lord's Prayer says. And people can say that it says something different, but I will take them to the, to the theological bank on that one. <laughs> I, I love that. I wish there was a podcast version of that Christina Aguilera gift that you see on the internet that just has her waving her hand saying, preach. That's, I wish there was a, an, audible, an audible version of that. Um, <laughs> I do have a question. So it's interwoven throughout this book and, and also some of the some of the stuff that you say online. And and if I'm taking this wrongly, tell me. So you, you, you reference often your know, white churches or the frozen chosen and, and you have today or, you know, the white Methodists or the white cat, uh, Catholics or the white Pentecostals. And, and I can't think that those choices of words are unintentional. And so is there is there something hindering, quote unquote, white culture or white ethnicity that limits us from experiencing gratitude in a way that a different culture can? Or am I misreading something? Um, no, that is, that's very purposeful. Um, I am a white person. And so what I knew I did not want to do, I mean, one of the things that actually was very hard for me while I was working on this book was not only the fact that Donald Trump was president and that personally hurt me, um, but the fact that 
I couldn't imagine that the world needed one more gratitude book by a white lady who was a middle-class person. You know, it just was like, <laughs> I was just like, I don't need that book. <laughs> I wouldn't buy that book. What? Who cares about that book, you know, yeah. um, who lives in the suburbs of Northern Virginia? It was like, I, I, I'd be offended by that book in some ways. And so I actually had to think through this uh, very deeply and pray through it um, quite extensively. And, you know, what I realized, of course, about white folks like me is that we have been some of the main perpetrators of debt and duty gratitude because we were the benefactors and we wanted to use our power to stay on top. And as long as we could think of other people, the poor or black folks or Hispanic people or, you know, whoever, immigrants or whoever it happened to be, as long as we could think of them as our beneficiaries and we were benefactors, you could use gratitude as a system of control. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is absolutely true, not only sort of in our deep psychology, but you can go back and you can look at this all through the history of slavery and just in the way white people treat black people. You should be grateful. Yeah. Oh, you don't really need affirmative action. You should be grateful that you're even allowed to attend the University of Virginia now. So just work hard and be grateful. Yeah. And so so white people have often used gratitude as a mechanism to control um, populations and individuals that they wanted to keep in bondage. And, and so, you know, sometimes actually that worked w with men and women too. Uh, so white women often found themselves in that same position when it came to white men. And so, you know, the, there's the ultimate benefactor and then there's all the people who benefit or the beneficiaries of whatever gifts the benefactor chooses to give. So that whole, that whole vision um, is very tied up in the United States with race. And I both, I wouldn't say that I tackle it entirely directly in this book, but I point it out and I try to undo it in this book. No, it's not even, and it's, that's why I say it's interwoven throughout. I actually had to go back and reread some, some sections to make sure I wasn't misremembering. So, um, yeah. yeah. And I think, I think it's really important because what, what happens is that most white churches reinforce gratitude as a transaction. And that has been, uh, that's a big theological problem, um, for, white people and for persons of color and for churches and for our society is that we seem to have divinized the idea of God as the ultimate benefactor. And all we have to do is, you know, God gives us gifts and then we're sort of indebted to God. That's not, e that's not even grace. I mean, the, the reformers would be holding our feet over the fire on that and saying, no, 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 that's not how it works. Yeah. <laughs> God is, is not that kind of gift giver. And um, so I did not want to speak for persons of color, but I did want... Uh, readers who are not white to know that I got, uh, that I understood at least some level of the way that this has been, gratitude has been wielded as a weapon against them. And also the fact that I deeply appreciate if you ever go to a black church, mm -hmm. 
they have so much thicker sort of language and worship and understanding of gratitude. So despite the way that white people have tried to use gratitude against black people in this culture, the black church experience, the spiritual experience of African Americans actually said, nope, we're not going to let you do that, but you're also not going to take away our Thanksgiving. We're going to, we're going to embody Thanksgiving biblically. Yeah. And, and so um, I think that communities which have been pushed down by debt and duty gratitude are actually communities where we can all learn a lot um, about what it means to have this alternate vision of gift and response gratitude. Yeah, yeah. A couple final questions. Um, to, and I'm probably going to say it wrong, but there is a portion in, in your work that talks about psychology and something called peak experience and uh, and how patriotism is fine but the the risk is mutating i think that's the word you use mutating patriotism into nationalism mm-hmm. and i can't see how that's not any more relevant it's not it's never going to be not more relevant than it is now because that's all that you hear all the time and so can you speak a bit about what that means peak experience and how that mutates our our feelings of gratitude or our feelings of love or fear uh, just those yeah. emotions overall I'm not an expert in Maslow, who is a psychologist who uh, talks about peak experiences. But, you know, peak experiences are these um, elevating experiences which draw you to levels of gratitude and wonder and, you know, the the kinds of, of, of experiences that make your, you know, you stand taller and your chest swell and your eyes tear. And um, there are very dominant kinds of experiences that we have around healing. When, you know, when a doctor tells you you're free of cancer, for example, you know, you have a peak experience. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or in religious community, there's often peak experiences. But the place where I talk about it, because I think it's actually most common for many Americans, is around patriotism. And I'm a huge baseball fan, and Every year we spend a certain number of our days at uh, National Stadium in Washington, D.C. And one of the things, I, I tend not to be that kind of person who has peak experiences around patriotism. For me, it's always around friendship and church. Uh, but, you know, people, people have them. And every single time you're at the baseball park, there's this stretch where they thank the veterans and play uh, some sort of patriotic song, usually Lee Greenwood's I'm Glad to Be an American. And um, everybody in the park you know, sort of applauds wildly and stands up, and there are people who are like tears in their eyes and the whole thing. And there's vets who are s- sitting in a special box, and they're all waving to the crowd. And I look at this, and I think to myself, okay, this is interesting. And so I recognize that people have peak experiences around patriotism. And that's, you know, they stand tall, they applaud, tears in their eyes. They feel happy. They feel grateful, you know, to be an American. And that's okay. But the, the line is when you say to yourself, I feel this about being an American, and you can't feel this about being a Canadian. Mm. 
or you can't feel this about being an Argentinian, or you can't feel this about being from Senegal. And the truth is, is that every single person born on this planet was born somewhere. And that place is their homeland. And that place makes them stand tall. And that place brings tears to their eyes. And that place makes them proud of who they are. And any person who is patriotic about his or her own homeland should be able to recognize that every other person on this planet loves their own homes wherever they came from. And they feel the same way about their home. But nationalism says that's not possible. Nationalism says there's only one place where you can have those feelings. Deutschland über alles. Germany overall. The United States is the the best and only nation for which you can have those feelings. And everybody else who has those feelings are wrong or misled. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the difference. Patriotism, yes. Fine line, nationalism, no. It's not gratitude if you say us and only us. But it is gratitude if you can say, yes, this is a beautiful set of feelings. And this same set of feelings can be accessed by every single human being on this planet. Because gratitude binds people together and causes people to be able to empathize and recognize the full humanity that we all share. And so, ha- National, Nationalism cuts that possibility off and says that only one group possesses those things, and that group is my group. And so how do we do that? As, as It's going to have to be the church, and you alluded to it earlier, you know, in the early 1800s, that's, that's what the church did. They loved on people. And so how do we do that? How do we establish, and I think you used the words, an economy of gratitude? And, and when I hear that, I, I think everybody gets to have dessert, and the fact that I get two pieces doesn't mean that you don't get seven pieces. There's there's dessert. And so if we, if we use that metaphor, how do we make sure that the economy is one that gratitude and grace and lack of debt is, is not scarce, that it is, that is abundant? What do we do? Well, I think that's the key right there in those two words that you, you just use, uh, used, abundance and scarcity. Um, functionally, um, most American churches are still teaching a theology of scarcity, and that is heaven is above and, you know, hell is below, and heaven has a limited number of tickets, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> you know, we don't always say it quite that way, although if you're a Calvinist, you actually do say that, um, is that, you know, you have to do something in order to go to heaven. And that the, that it's heaven is only for the few. Um, and so we teach this kind of scarcity really of salvation. You know, if you don't do X, well, too bad. You're going to go to Y. You know, that's the, that's the deal. And we also teach a scarcity of God's presence. You know, unless you pray in the right way to God, God will not heal you. God will not send you blessings. Um, and so, there's, we're surrounded in churches all the time by a scarce, uh, theology of scarcity. I think this is actually, I think people have noticed this. And I think that that theology of scarcity um, accounts for some of the popularity, say, of the prosperity gospel. 
where I, I think that the prosperity gospel is really trying to teach a theology of abundance, that God is good, that God is loving, that God's blessings are everywhere. Um, but where the prosperity gospel goes wrong is they never fully account for issues of evil and suffering. They always blame that on uh, on us, you know, as, yeah. as human be on human beings. And so I I actually have some serious appreciation for the prosperity gospel because I think they're trying to correct a very big problem um, in American theology that salvation, that blessings, that goodness, that grace is only for a few. Um, but uh, they still the prosperity people still determine that in terms of economics and just don't really account for sadness and and um oppression and and if you can't account for those two things well then it, it's difficult to see how it really winds up being the gospel uh so so i think what we need is we need a more a, a more fulsome a more uh, just I keep I've used the word fulsome twice in this interview, but that's the word that I like right now. Um, <laughs> I think we really truly need a, a richer, deeper understanding of abundance. And um, at this point in time, my uh, the way I understand abundance is that God created God created this universe, God created this world, and that God created a world where we have everything we need. Uh, the poet Wendell Berry, that's one of my favorite lines from any of, from his huge corpus of work, everything we need is here. Mm. And for us as human beings, what that means is that everything we need is here, that, that, there, that the world actually is an abundant world. It's not a world of scarcity. That what makes it scarce is when we abuse it, and we try to control it, and we make bad choices about it. And for us to reach towards that abundance is to say, no, we're not going to make those choices. We're not going to live in a world where the illusion is that everything is about slices of pie. But instead, we're going to live in a world where Jesus says, everyone come to the banquet. And, and we really need to live that way, as if God really does set the table. And if God sets the table, there is enough for all. And it's no surprise to me that two of the central stories in the, sort of the, mirac the corpus of, of miracles in the New Testament are very strong stories about abundance, the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000. Mm. Yeah. And... And um, that's God's vision of scarcity versus abundance right there in the Bible. Mm. And so that's how I think, at least in our traditions, and, and there are beautiful, also very beautiful uh, traditions of theology of abundance in the Hebrew Bible. So uh, Christians and Jews and Muslims um, all have a deep theology of abundance. Uh, Muslims have an amazing theology of abundance that comes from the traditions of the Quran, where Hagar is sent out in the desert, you know, with her son Ishmael, and they they actually are going to die of thirst. And 
there's a spring that wells up, and the spring is divine, and they drink. Yeah, everything and, they need and, is there. Everything they need is there. And so so in the great monotheistic traditions, which are at the core of Western culture and Western values, is not a theology of scarcity. That is false. Theology mm. of scarcity is idolatry. It is heresy. The Bible, Jewish theology, Christian theology, Islamic theology, teach abundance. And if we don't do that, well, our churches are illegitimate, and our culture is corrupted. And that's a pretty good example of what's been going on, is we've allowed a theology of scarcity to shape our economic life, and it should not. I think I could talk to you for many more hours about this, but we don't, we don't have the, the ability to do it. We don't, we, neither of us have the time for that. So for those listening, if you haven't pre-ordered or ordered, the, just, just order the book, I can assure you, in the world that we live in, in the climate that you need, everyone, everyone can learn to embrace gratitude a little bit better. And and I think, Diana, you've, I think you've done a good job. And I don't know that I would have been able to write it with the world that we live in. I'm actually, I'm certain that I wouldn't have been able to. Where would you, where would you put send people to? Um, how can they connect with you and get engaged? Um, I'm easy to find on social media. I have a very active uh, presence on Twitter. I try to respond to people who ask me real questions and good questions. If they come on to Twitter and just want to, you know, attack me, I will block you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, But I do my best. When there's a real serious question that's asked, I do my best to engage it. And um, also, I have a public Facebook page. My private one is is closed. It's actually full. Uh, But the public Facebook page is another place to find me uh, through my website. And there's a way to contact me on my website. So you could ask me questions privately. And as I said, I try to engage. I can't always promise I get to everything, but I do my best. Excellent. Well, thank you again for your time, Diana. I have, I have enjoyed it. I, this has been a pleasure. It was great to meet you, Seth. Yeah. And uh, I, I'm so pleased that you liked uh, Grateful. And um, at this point in time, I think it may well be one of the few pathways we have back toward one another instead of um, away from one another at this difficult time in the life of our nation. Thank you so much for listening. I would encourage, I would ask for your feedback. Please email us at church at gmail.com. Interact with us on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, your feedback only helps to make the show better. If you have liked in any way or if you engaged in any way with any of the, the podcast episodes that you've heard so far, please consider going to our Patreon page. You can find that at church.com. There's a big, huge button up there. Like us on Facebook, and we will see you in the next episode.